We're going to return to our series, Radical Devotion, and the aim of the series is to uncover um, some of the practices, the core practices which marked the spiritual life of the earliest Christians, and uh, I think when we understand these things well and do them well, and there's immense spiritual power in each of these things. So we're going to read from Acts 2, verse 42. I also want to turn to 2 Corinthians 8 passage should be uh, behind me in a moment, which is on page 1689 in the Brown Bibles. But we're going to start with Acts 2, which is page 1597. Um, Before I read it, just wanted to mention Luke and Janice, the newlyweds. (laughs) Here, wow. Um, It's good to have you guys back, looking good. Um, Okay, Acts 2. Verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We looked at each of those elements, those four elements of their practice. It says that awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And here's our next characteristic of the church. Look at these next two verses. It says, And all who believed were together. And had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So we see a radical expression of generosity, of kindness, of giving in the church congregation. And Luke goes on and tells us that day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. So our theme this evening is on the radical generosity of the church, this expression of kindness one to another. In a church of thousands, it's a little bit more understandable when you think of it within a very small, tight-knit group. But within a church of thousands, it seems even more uh, extraordinary, almost unbelievable that they were doing this. And so we want to think about that. I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians 8 as well. Um, this is written about, written, a letter written to a church. Um, and uh, this church existed a couple of decades after the Jerusalem church. So um, we're looking a little bit later in the time span of the New Testament. And Paul's writing a letter to them. And actually what he's trying to do is get the Corinthian Christians, these Greek Christians, to save up a pot of money that will be taken back to the original church in Jerusalem because they're obviously going through some pretty difficult times financially. So the Corinthian Christians are well off. The Jerusalem Christians are poor. And in this way, there's a kind of solidarity among Christians worldwide. So um, just as an aside, I suppose the generosity that you're seeing in the Jerusalem church just internally isn't supposed to be just the mark of a local church, but even of the church worldwide, that generosity should flow across Uh, cities and nations, those boundaries. Anyway, let's read from verse 7. Paul tells them, As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you. So as you demonstrate godliness in all kinds of ways, he says, See that you excel in this act of grace also, by which he means generosity. And he goes, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give you my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing out of what you completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So Paul is really just commending their willingness, their readiness, he calls it, their, their desire, their eagerness to be generous. And he's saying, this is wonderful and it's acceptable to God. In verse 13, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it's written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, we've been trying to explore different dimensions of the spirituality of the earliest Christians, and looking at the very practical things they did, but considering things which we would regard as very spiritual activities, things like devotion to the Word of God, devotion to prayer, and these kinds of things. But I think one of the tendencies for um, Christians of our day and in our location is to create a kind of a spectrum of spiritual activity so that you have the more spiritual things at one end, and we think about certain practices as more spiritual like prayer and worship and so on, and more mundane things at the other end. And um, I think that among those would be generosity and giving. Um, it's not an exclusively Christian act after all, is it? It's, it's just a human thing to do. And we do this about gifts as well, don't we, by the way? Things about the gifts of the Spirit. We have the gifts which we think of as super spiritual in their, in their nature. Uh, things like prophecy and healing and all that. And then you have the other gifts which we put on more on the mundane plane. And um, to be honest, th- this is not the way the Scriptures think about things. This is, uh, this is to do with a Greek mindset. It's to do with what we call dualism. The separation of spirit and body so that they are two opposing forces. The spiritual stuff belongs there. The bodily stuff belongs there. And the problem with that is, of course, that you, you diminish the importance and the spirituality of something as earthy and practical as generosity. And what that means in practice is you could, you could look at two guys. Let's say one of them is, on the surface of things, a very spiritual person, very devoted to church, very devoted to prayer, very devoted to um, service and appears to all intents and purposes like um, a model of spirituality. But if you knew something about that man's um, generosity and discovered that he was tight-fisted and mean, it would call into question the entirety of his walk with God. That's what I want you to understand this evening. And the, the reverse is also true in, in, to a degree that if somebody on the surface of things might appear um, like luster in their spirituality, but if you knew something of the secretness of their radical passion to be generous towards other people, you might want to reassess what you think about such a person. And what I'm trying to make a case for is that generosity is at the very heart and center of godliness and spirituality. And you need to pause and think before we get into this. When you consider your own life, would you consider yourself to be a generous person? 
Would you consider yourself to be generous in terms of your intention and deliberate efforts to be giving and kind and to um, give towards causes and things which you believe in? And are you also somebody who is generous in spontaneous opportunities when you see need? When a friend or a colleague or someone has need in their life, do you run towards that? Do you offer something of yourself, whether it's time, energy, or possessions, or finance, or whatever it is? Are you generous? This is what we need to, to think about. I think, as I said, that generosity is right at the very heart and center of godly spirituality. The word godly means to be like God, doesn't it? You think about the nature of who God is. God is generous. He is fundamentally an outward focus giving person. And therefore to be like God and to imitate God, to imitate Christ is to become a giving and generous person. So this is what we need to explore. What on earth does giving have to do with your spirituality? I want to give you three answers to this. The first is, I think, that giving is love, and love is giving. If you were to ask what is the very essence and heart of the godly life, it's the highest commands. Jesus told us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as, as yourself. So love is the essence of, of godliness, isn't it? A pure, of a pure way of life. Love is the essence of it. And actually, giving and love are bound together. That's what I want you to see. Now think about the, um, think about the Christians in Acts 2. Ask yourself the question, what was going on here that inspired them to this unique and lavish display of generosity so that the rich person and the poor person came into the church together and, and found that they, they were sharing their goods and they had everything in common. What was going on there? And we need to rule out a few options here. Um, things that are not true of them. The first is that I don't, I don't think that this was a rule or a law. Just like Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, I say this not as a command. The same was true in Acts 2. There was no rule or law from God that the Christians had to share all their possessions. That's really important to say because I think, um, we've got to, for one thing, we've got to find an explanation for why Christians haven't done this all through the running centuries. It's not been the normal practice of Christians around the world to live like this. This was a very unique thing. And also, in a sense, I think it would diminish what they were doing if, if you knew that it would, they were just obeying some command, wouldn't it? If they were, you know, if, if, if God had said through one of the apostles, you must share all your goods, I think somehow that would diminish the act, wouldn't it? It would feel more of a conditional thing. It would feel less that their heart was engaged. So this isn't a rule or a law, nor is it... Nor is it anything like a kind of a tax. You know, there's been a lot of, you know, political theory and movements in the last couple of centuries around the idea, centered on the idea of human equality, that we need to share all our possessions. So the more moderate version is socialism, the more extreme version is communism. And some people would have seen this as a kind of proto-version of some kind of socialism or communism. But actually, I don't, I, I don't think that's true of it at all. For, for a number of reasons. One is that there is, there's absolutely no criticism here of wealth. The Bible is never critical of wealth in and of itself. It's critical of the love of money, but never of wealthiness. And in fact, wealth is a blessing from God. So the, you know, often 
the way that we deal with wealth in our culture is that we just feel envious towards it, don't we? And we think, this person should pay more in order to make things equal. But the Bible doesn't look at it that way at all. Nor is there a kind of a legislated, forced version of equality that the apostles somehow looked at the church and, and, and forced some kind of false equality among the members of the church. It was nothing like that. This wasn't a tax. And it wasn't a law. And neither was it like some kind of weird membership thing to belong to the church. You know, that if you were going to be part of this church, you had to, to pay your dues to be part of the thing. And, you know, the, peop- the poor people might get, like, the bronze membership and the wealthies will get the, the gold membership, and your benefits would be somehow comparable to the amount you contributed. None of that stuff was at play here. The, the only way you can understand what was going on in the early church was that this was, this was love. It was uncommanded, unforced, spontaneous eruption of love from the people. And when you... When you think about it that way, it, it suddenly becomes so much more understandable and liberating, doesn't it? I want you just to dissect this for a moment. We, we, need, to, we need to understand this thing of love and, and extract all the other false motives which can get mixed in with generosity. One of those is sometimes I think you can, you can feel that you need to be generous out of guilt, can't you? Um, I saw it an advert for a, a charity, a poster, that had a picture of this child, these longing eyes, looking, looking at the camera. And the words on the poster were, look him in the eye and tell him you can't afford £2.50. And you look him in the eye and you think, I can, I can afford £2.50. And if I say no, whoa, the timey. And you feel this guilt in your spirit just looking at this boy's eyes. And of course, you know, if, if especially if you're accosted by someone, you end up signing up because you can't think of a good reason not to. And it's only a year or two down the line when you cancel your direct debit. But at the moment, you feel guilty, don't you? And you feel motivated by guilt. And guilt's a very potent motivator of generosity, isn't it? But that is, there was no guilt going on here in the early church. It wasn't guilt. Neither was this um, a kind of a self-righteous thing. I think in our day and age, there, are, there is a very obvious kind of modern expression of self-righteous Phariseeism in the kind of millennial social justice warrior virtue signaling persona where a person wears their social justice credentials up front, but it doesn't necessarily mean that through and through their life is, is the same all the way through. You know, one obvious example of this is how so many people in our generation might fight for causes out there whether it's you know, fair trade and all that kind of stuff or veganism or all these kinds of things, but you know, maybe taking recreational drugs at the weekend and, of course, not seeing that there's a huge inconsistency there given that those drugs were most likely um, attained by injustice and oppression and the work of cartels and all the rest of it. And you see these huge inconsistencies in the way people think in our day. And it's just, it's just, it's just a modern form of Phariseeism. I wear my righteousness... Uh, plaques on the outside, but inside my heart is, is just as corrupt as anyone else's. And of course, you could think, well, is that what was going on here? But it wasn't, it wasn't at all that. You know, it, it wasn't the case that people somehow earned their, their badge of, of being a good Christian by, by giving their money away. And I think probably the most important one of all is to say this, this wasn't just duty. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13, the passage which is so often read 
um, in the context of a wedding service where Paul talks about what real love looks like. He says, love is patient and kind and all these kinds of things. Do you remember how he says this line? If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but haven't not love, I gain nothing. So Paul's saying, listen, you could, it's possible to be a most extraordinarily generous person such that every single last thing you own, you give away to the poor. And he says it can be completely void and empty in the eyes of God if, if it's not done from love. So you ca- I don't think you can understand at all what was going on in Acts 2 when the church is sharing their possessions unless at the heart of it you see a radical move of gut-level, compassionate love and mercy towards one another. It's the only way we can understand this. And I think to break it down even more, the only way you understand it is to see that they now regarded one another as family. Because to be a Christian is to come into a new relationship with one another. It's to come into a new relationship with God, first and foremost, that the Father is your father, that Jesus is your older brother. But it also means that when you become a Christian, you join a church, that church, and of course the church worldwide, is now, in some sense, the most important family you have. And I think this is why, you know, when Jesus is talking to the early Christians in places like Matthew 19, he says that if anyone's given up, you know, houses and lands, and uh, what does he say? He says, whoever's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake. And this is, you know, this is a realistic possibility for a lot of Christians worldwide. That to follow Jesus means to walk away from many of your earthly benefits, including your actual biological family. He says to those people, he says, you'll receive a hundredfold. Now, how is that possible? How can you receive a hundred times as many brothers and sisters as your biological ones? Well, the only answer that makes sense to me is the church. Because you, you trade in that to gain this. And this is so much better and deeper and richer because this new union is built on the ground of believing in Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, right? And so these early believers went from a kind of vague spirituality of belief in God, but maybe, you know, that wasn't fulfilled in a sense to becoming believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who died and risen for their sins. And suddenly they found that this new belief in him bound them together like the closest-knit family, even though there were thousands of them. And it's unimaginable in a family, isn't it? It should be, at least. For one of you to prosper while another one is poor. At least if you see that in a family, you know the family is dysfunctional, don't you? You know that the breakdown is a love breakdown. It's very easy to diagnose. And so these early Christians saw the disparities. that Some of them were too wealthy and some of them were far too poor, And love began to move in their hearts, and they moved towards one another in love. And this, I believe, is the seal of the genuineness of their spirituality and of their godliness. That giving is love, and love is giving. Here's the second thing. I think giving is the gospel, and the gospel is giving. So remember, what we're trying to ask is, what does giving have to do with spirituality? And one of the easiest ways we can answer this is to say, Think, what's the heart of the Christian faith? What is the central thing that we believe? It's, it's, it's a message of an act of divine generosity, isn't it? That the Father, the beating heart of the Christian faith is, first of all, the Father's giving to us of his Son, Jesus. 
It's that f- famous verse in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The movement of God towards us is an act of generosity, isn't it? In fact, I think you can go a little bit further and say that this is God's primary love language. You ever heard the talk about love languages um, that the, I think, psychologist uh, Gary Chapman talks about? So if couples are, are struggling, you know, newlyweds, for example, need to figure out how to love each other better or whatever, um, the love languages can help, right? Love languages are um, different ways that you, you express and experience love from another person. They're things like uh, touch, physical touch, or words of affirmation, or quality time, or acts of service, or gifts. And the thing about each of us, Chapman argues, is that we're all wired in a slightly different way to give and experience love differently. So if one person in a couple primarily experiences love through acts of service, they feel loved when someone serves them, but the other feels love through quality time, then sometimes they don't know how to express love towards one another because they're basically speaking different languages. And the thing about the love language is it can, it can massively help your marriage, even if you discover that your wife's primary love language is gifts, the most expensive of all the love languages, and she claims to have all five in her... In her um, she's, she's multilingual, put it that way. Now, I, I think you can make a case, you know, if you think about love and how love is given and received, I think you can make a pretty strong case that the primary way God demonstrates love is, is through giving. It's there in the Trinity that there's this kind of mutual giving of love, but it's also there in the way God expresses love to his people. The first thing God does when he creates Adam and Eve is he puts them in a beautiful context where they, are, where they can flourish and prosper. And even though they wreck it, God keeps giving and giving and giving. And one of the ways he expresses his fatherliness to us is through prospering us and blessing us and ultimately the promises of heaven and of eternity are of his generosity and bountiful giving towards us but ignoring all of that it's right at the heart of our faith isn't it paul says if ever you you know in effect he says if ever you aren't quite sure if god loves you enough you can always know it for certain when you remember that he gave you Jesus. And here's how he puts it in Romans 8. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So he's saying God has demonstrated beyond question his absolute amazing love for us so that no believer need ever doubt, even in the hardest, most difficult moments of life when God seems most distant from you, you never need to question his extraordinary love to you because once and for all in history, he gave us his son, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in the rest of that chapter to say, who will separate us from the love of God? Nothing can. Because God's love is so powerful. But my point is that giving is at the heart of the gospel. And not just in the Father's giving of his Son to us, but also in the way the Son gives of his life to us. And you think about it, even in his movements, the way the passage we had in the worship time, Philippians 2, that he moved from the place of the Father's right hand to earth, humbling himself, Paul says, and then humbled himself further to the cross. And the humbling isn't just the fact that he takes on flesh. It's also the kind of flesh he takes on, the life he chooses to live. Because one of the things that you notice about Christ is that he, he lived an abjectly poor life. He wasn't wealthy. He was materially poor. 
And this is one of the points Paul's making when he's encouraging these believers to give in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, and he means before he became man, he says, yet for your sake, for all of us, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And you think about and you reflect, and you think, well, Paul's absolutely right. The Lord of all the universe, the one through whom everything was created, chose to live a poor life. You find him in the Gospels having barely a possession to his name. He's borrowing stuff all the time. He borrows boats to preach from. He borrows a donkey to ride on. He borrows rooms to meet in. The only thing that we see Jesus owns is one decent garment and a a seamless garment. So there's some justification to have one decent outfit in 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 your wardrobe. But he's saying... All of Christ's life is just this, this materially poor life. Do you remember how um, a man comes up to him one day and says, I want to be your disciple? And uh, whenever a guy volunteered, I mean, sometimes Jesus picked disciples, but whenever someone volunteered to be a disciple, you want to listen to what Jesus says to them because normally he digs around a little bit and finds the idols of their heart and figures out why they're going to struggle. And he says to this guy, Foxes have holes, so they've got a home. It's not a very nice home, but he's saying a fox lives in a hole. It's something at least. Birds of the air have nests, so even the animals have homes. And he says the son of man, he's kind of pointing at himself, has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying, do you really want to follow me, given that my life is one of walking the streets, sleeping rough, or trying to find a room with somebody who's willing to, to put us up for the night? That's the life I've chosen to live. And Jesus just lived this poor life. He was poor in his material wealth. He was poor in his status. Um, the way Isaiah puts it is he was, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. So whilst many people could walk through life with plaudits and recognition and dignity just by virtue of maybe their family or their career or something in life that gives them recognition, Jesus actually had none of that. He, he didn't even have a status wealth. So I, when he goes home to preach to his hometown in Nazareth, do you, me, do you remember what they say to him? They kind of look at him quizzically and they think, isn't this the uh, carpenter's son? The builder's son? And of course, what it is, is a kind of, it's really a form of snobbery. They think, well, how does he dare to take it upon himself to teach us, given that this guy is basically a working class builder? And... The irony, of course, is that he's not only the son of Joseph, the builder, he's also son of the living God who built everything, the great creator of all things, which is the first thing we learn about God in creation. They don't see it that way, of course. They don't realize that they're cleverer than they thought. He's relationally poor, denied by friends, even by the Father. And you ask yourself the question, why? Why did Jesus, why did he choose poverty? And I don't think the answer is because poverty is inherently, inherently a good thing. It's not because it's righteous to be poor. I, I think the answer has to be, I think we have to come at it in a couple of ways, partly through understanding the mystery of the gospel and partly through understanding the example that he was trying to set. So when you think about the mystery of the gospel, this is what Paul's saying to us. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And I don't fully understand this, but I think, I think what Paul's saying is that all through Christ's life, what we're seeing is his willingness to take our suffering upon himself. 
so that we can have his, his benefits. So the most important thing is our sin. He takes his sin upon, our sin upon himself so that we can have his righteousness, his obedience. And we can be marked up as obedient before the Father, even though we've, we've lived tragically wicked lives. But he also walks in our sufferings in other ways. He takes our temptation upon himself. And he takes our poverty upon himself. He takes the lowest place so that we can be elevated to the highest place. And somehow the gospel and its mystery, you know, Christ wants to do the full transfer. He wants to take all the wickedness of the world on himself so that he, we can have all the benefits of heaven. And wealth is part of that. Jesus chose poverty so that you can become rich. And that's the gospel. And he means rich in Christ. He means rich in eternity. He means rich in inheritance. So it's partly about the gospel, but it's also about the example of Jesus. Because to, to, to be frank, many people have, have walked in his footsteps because he's shown us that it's possible. That it's possible to live a life that pleases the Father and renounces wealth if necessary. If that will make your heart godlier. I'm not sure that it's necessarily the call for every person, but Paul's saying, listen, we can part with our earthly goods because Jesus did it before us. And the Father took care of him. He's going to take care of you too. Now, if, if I'm right, if giving is at the very heart of the gospel, the core message that a Christian believes, the implication is huge for us. The implication is huge for diagnosing your your, your spirituality. We can put it negatively and then positively. T- to put it negatively, it means that if you are unwilling, stubbornly ungenerous in your life and have no desire to share and to give, then it, it immediately calls into question whether you know Christ at all. I know that's a harsh and firm way to put it, but I, I think that's what the Bible tells us. For example, in James 2, James is talking to a church, and he's talking to the context of a gathering like this. And he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, I believe in Jesus, in other words, but he doesn't have works. Like, there's nothing in his life to demonstrate that his faith is real. And he gives an example. He says, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, he's describing what's going on in a worship service. Somebody comes in, and they're poorly clothed, and he it doesn't mean, you know, they just got really bad fashion sense. It means, no, they, they barely have two pennies to rub together and they don't have enough food to be full. He says, if that person comes into your service and, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead, he says. So if you encounter a brother or sister in Christ, whether it's in a worship service or somewhere else, and you realize that their life is in definite need, and your heart is not moved towards generosity, he's saying that there's a very real chance that whatever faith you think you have in Jesus is hollow. It's a really sobering thought, isn't it? Just an example of this. You remember how Jesus had 12 disciples, the 12 men that he picked to be his closest followers in whom he would impart his teaching so that they would spread it across the world. And 11 out of 12 was his success rate because one of them 
was the guy Judas, the infamous Judas. And do you know what was the first indicator, as far as I can tell, that Judas was the bad egg in the, among the apostles, among the disciples? Do you know what was the, the first symptom, if you like, that he wasn't genuine? It was in this area of his lack of generosity. Here it is in, in John 12. Mary, in this lavish act of, of worship, really, it says she took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet and wiped him with her hair. And the, the house is full of fragrance, and it's a very expensive perfume. It's, it's worth 300 denarii, we're told, which is um, a totally meaningless number to all of us. But if I translate that for you, I understand that it's about almost a year's labor for a normal laborer. And Judas says, in this kind of holier-than-thou, sanctimonious way, he says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And of course, in that moment, you think, well, there, there's a genuine, he's like one of those social justice warriors, isn't he? He's like, there, there he is. He's virtue signaling. Uh, it's too late, of course. The ointment's already on the floor, so it costs him nothing to say at that point. But interestingly, John, one of the other disciples, who um, clearly had no much love left for Judas, in writing this story, he gives us a little comment. He said, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas was like our version of Eugene, but the corrupt version. <laughs> he was the, he was the, the church treasurer. Um, Eugene is totally above question for the recording. Um, he, was the, he was the treasurer. He was the church treasurer. So when people you know, wanted to contribute to the ministry of Jesus and support them, sometimes people might give them a financial gift. And Judas was like, oh, I'll look after that. Let me just put it in the purse here. But of course, he was pilfering. He was just slipping out cash here and there to, to run off when everyone else is asleep and go and have a beer or whatever it was he wanted to do, or much worse, no doubt. And he was spending the money illegitimately that belonged to them collectively. And John says, well, it, John must have known. Jesus must have known. Now, how did John write the story? I mean, it, I don't know how they would have found out. But, you know, in that is the, is the first sign and symptom that this guy didn't really know Christ. Because here's Christ giving of his life so sacrificially for the people, and Judas Something hasn't clicked and connected because he's basically a thief. He wants to take where Jesus is all about giving. And that, that's the heart of the Christian who has not, it's not clicked for them. That The heart of the gospel is giving, giving, giving. And if you've not become generous, there's a possibility like Judas that you've never really understood the gospel. Of course, it's no surprise then that when it comes to the end of Christ's life, how is it that Judas can can sell him out. How can he sell Christ out? Well, because the lure of 30 silver coins is worth it to him in that moment. He betrays him for 30 coins. His master. You think, wow, this guy, that's, that's, that's the diagnostic, friends, of his heart and so many hearts. If, if you're mean-spirited, then you've never really understood the gospel. That, that's the negative way of putting it. But the other way to put it is this. That when you, when you come to know Jesus, when he 
reveals himself to you, understand that he gave himself for you, that he loves you, that he gave his life for you on the cross, it starts to melt you. That even if you were a mean person, you become generous in ways that you never expected. In your time, in giving love and affection, and in giving finance, in, in every aspect and dimension of your life, you become generous. There's a beautiful example of this in, in Barnabas. Barnabas is one of the earliest men to come to know Je- to, to become a Christian in the early church. And Barnabas is a Levite. A Levite is sort of belongs to the kind of priestly class in Israel. But there was laws about the Levites. The Levites were not allowed to own land because the whole intention was that they would live from the generosity of the people so that their whole life could be focused on serving God. They, they weren't to be encumbered with farming and working and all those kinds of things. They were meant to be supported by the people so that they could serve God. But Barnabas wasn't a proper Levite because even though the law legislated that, he actually owned land. But something happened to him when he became a Christian and the power of the law that could never change him is eclipsed by the power of the gospel because suddenly Barnabas becomes a lavishly generous man. We're told in Acts 4 that he sold the field that belonged to him and came and laid the money at the apostles' feet. And unlike Judas, who ultimately winds up becoming an absolute um, pitiful wreck on account of his meanness and grabbing, for Barnabas it's the opposite. This is the first sign that the faith that he has in Christ is real. His hands become open. The things that actually he shouldn't own at all, he, he gives away. And from that moment on, at the end of Acts 4, Barnabas' life is, is, is a life of radical discipleship to Jesus Christ. He becomes one of the first missionaries. In fact, along with Paul, the first two men who were sent out deliberately by the church to be missionaries across in, in, in international scope, he becomes a radical church planter who sees the world turned upside down by the seeds that he sows alongside Paul as an apostle. And you think, where did it all begin? Well, the radical faith that he had in God began when the seeds of the gospel were planted in his heart and his heart heart was opened. He became generous. It's one of the first signs that the gospel's got you. You open your hands. So giving is love. Giving is the gospel. Here's my third point. Giving is worship. We began the service with that amazing quote from uh, David Foster Wallace that everybody worships. The only choice you have is what you worship because the whole of your life is being constantly poured out towards certain ultimate ends, things that have captivated you, things that maybe you haven't even fully understood and diagnosed and understood about your own heart motives, but you, you have objects of worship. To be a Christian is, of course, to understand that God is the ultimate reason for living and live your life for him. But even in your Christian life, worship is a mixed thing, isn't it? We're seduced by idolatries. We're pulled by things to the left and the right that aren't real, sincere worship. And you can start to examine your heart. You can look inside and diagnose where your idols lie. And you can ask yourself questions like, what is it that I most desire? Well, that's probably an idol. What is it that I could not live without? It's probably an idol unless it's Jesus. What is it that um, motivates me to get out of bed in the morning? 
Look at that carefully. Think about that carefully, because if you scrape deeply enough, you might find there's an idol somewhere at the bottom lurking in your heart. What is it that you dream about, whether literally in your sleep or that you daydream about? What is it that you do all your Google searches about? What is it that you have nightmares about for fear of losing? When you really begin to scrape away the surface levels of your heart, you begin to see, well, these things actually, there are all kinds of idols lurking in the heart. But the easiest way by far to discover the idols that that are in your heart, the the idolatrous motives that drive you, is to look at what you give to, what you give your time to, most willingly, what you give your energy to and what you give your money to, without hesitation or reservation. Now, the culture that we live in is in the grip of the idol of consumerism. Our whole world now, the whole entire economy is built, is built on the model of consumerism, isn't it? That we advertise things that you don't need so that you can buy more of them to feed the economy. And so the whole thing goes round and round so that more things can be manufactured. And that this, it's a never-ending cycle, isn't it, of consumerism? In this book, um, You Are What You Love by James Smith, he he just does a little bit of a thought experiment to just, di- just look at one example of how consumerism manifests itself in the modern age. And he uses the example of what the Americans call a mall. Um, that's the American word we like to talk about going to the shopping center, which is somewhat less glamorous, and it doesn't quite work for the illustration's purpose. When you're talking about the shopping center, the, no, the mall, we'll talk about the mall instead. So James Smith says, he says, when you go to the mall, everything about it is geared up to be like a place of worship. The architecture, the map that you see when you walk in, which is like an order of service, the regulars who are like the faithful worshippers. He says, the way the light is manipulated through windows in a timeless way so that you lose consciousness of times passing and, and, and in the rituals of worship, the calendar of the year around which your various worship services are structured so that you have seasons for shopping for different things. All of this very much mirrors the way people through history have conducted themselves in worship. And then he, there's this brilliant paragraph. He says this, the layout of this temple, the mall, the shopping center, has architectural echoes that harken back to medieval cathedrals, mammoth religious spaces designed to absorb all kinds of religious activities happening at one time. You know how when you walk into a cathedral, and it, it would have been so much more uh, the case in, in, in ancient times, I believe, but when you walk into the cavernous uh, central area of a cathedral, you'd have all kinds of activities milling around. People lighting candles and praying there. People kneeling at the altar. People uh, praying or doing confession over there. And it's all going on at the same time, right? And he says, it's like that when you walk into a, into a mall. And he says, and so one might say that this religious building has a winding labyrinth for contemplation, alongside of which are innumerable chapels devoted to various saints. Just like in a cathedral where you have the little side chapels. He's like, that's your shops. As we wonder... The labyrinth in contemplation preparing to enter one of the chapels will be struck by the rich iconography, the images, that lines the walls and interior spaces. Unlike the flattened depictions of saints one might find in stained glass windows, here one finds an array of three-dimensional icons adorned in garb that, as with all iconography, inspires our desire to be imitators of these exemplars. These statues and icons, and he's talking about mannequins, embody for us 
concrete images of the good life, these are the ideals of perfection to which we will learn to aspire. Because it's just one example of the idol of consumerism and how it plays out in the way our culture worships. But I think he's really hit the nail on the head. And of course, this is true. that The things that we give to are the things we worship, right? Now, come back to the Bible for a moment. In the Old Testament, if you were to boil it down, what's the one thing that characterized Old Testament worship? It wasn't so much singing, not necessarily even prayer. Those things were features, but they weren't the predominant characteristic of Old Testament worship. The thing which, which seems to, to be most, the most consistent theme to the Old Testament patterns of worship is, is giving, is offering. It's right there in the stories of the patriarchs. God calls for offerings. They Cain and Abel, they bring their gifts, and one of them is acceptable and the other isn't. And do you think that for a moment that that has in any way diminished as we come into the New Testament, that, that if they had to give, that New Testament faith and Christianity and worship is not about giving. I don't think so, not even for a second. If anything, I think that the call towards be giving as worship has intensified and increased. And I say that because of the passage which we, we, uh, I briefly mentioned to you earlier in Matthew 19, when uh, it's actually the whole story is that this rich young guy comes to Jesus and says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, obey this and obey that and obey this. And he says, I've done all those things. And he's he's still in agony of soul because he's like, something's missing. Something's not right. And Jesus looks at his heart and he says to him, one thing you lack, give away everything you have and come and follow me. Of course, it's a very unique command to that man because Jesus, who knows the heart of man, sees inside him and knows the ultimate idol which has to fall for him to bow to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's his, his possessions, his wealth. And Peter, a bit later on in the story, they're, they're chatting among the disciples. And Peter says, look, we've, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus goes on and says those verses. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. If anything, the call to give as a expression of worship has not diminished in the New Testament. It has intensified and increased. Because we're now called to give the entirety of our lives in such a, so much more of an explicit way. Which, of course, is not less than your possessions. It's much more than your possessions. It's absolutely everything. This is made so much more clear in the New Testament. It doesn't mean that you have to literally give away your possessions. I don't think that's, that's true. Not just because I'm trying to wriggle out of it. <laughs> I hope not, at least. But because I think when you understand the right, the call of the New Testament, it's rather this, that everything you do and give and spend is now an act of worship. The whole of your life is an act of worship. This is why, just coming back to our passage in 2 Corinthians 8, when Paul's talking about their heart motive and their readiness, He says in verse 12, if the readiness is there, 
In other words, if you're willing, if there's an eagerness, if there's joy in your willingness to give to other believers, he says, it is acceptable. According to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. So he means, of course, that God isn't looking at the size of your gift. He's looking at the willingness and your willingness to sacrifice based on what you have or, or even don't have. But the more important thing is he says it is acceptable. That word almost always means acceptable to God. It's a, he's saying it's a pleasing sacrifice, which is surprising because he's talking about a, a horizontal gift from one believer to another, or from a group of believers to another church. But what he's saying is that that, that gift that's, that moves horizontally from one church to another is like a fragrant offering of worship to God. It's not that they came and gave to the church or to the work of missions or something like that. No, they're just giving to needy brothers and sisters in Christ. But in Christ's eyes, it's like a sweet offering of worship. Because giving is worship. I think this is how we make sense of that soul-searching parable at the end of Matthew's gospel. When Jesus is talking about the final judgment, he's talking about how there'll be a separation, that he will separate people, one from another, into two groups, this binary judgment. And he describes some of the criteria he uses. He says to those whom he's honoring, he says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And of course, he's playing out the conversation because then the righteous person asks, when did I do any of these things? Because presumably, like you and I, none of us have seen Jesus face to face. Like we've not given to him directly. And he's, he's asking the obvious question, when did we do these things? And he says, Whenever you did this for the least of your brothers, you did it for me. In other words, when you show generosity to another person, especially to those who are of the household of faith, to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, every act of service and kindness and generosity and giving is an act of worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that changes the flavor and character of giving, doesn't it? When you think of it that way. It solves all the conundrums. You ever agonized over whether it's right to give to a certain brother or sister in Christ? And you know, all those kind of questions. You know, all of that just comes a lot simpler when you understand that you're not really giving to them. You're giving to Jesus. And he is always worthy. He's always worthy. Friend, do you have a generous heart? Only you can answer that because if you're obeying Jesus when it comes to giving, none of us really know whether you're giving or not, do we? It's supposed to be a secret thing. But we're called to look at our lives, aren't we? Is there a consistent willingness to give, to let go of the things that are yours, to bless others? If you're not a Christian, it's so important you understand that this is not where you begin. Generosity is, is definitely part of the Christian faith, but 
you don't start there. You start by receiving, actually. You start by receiving the, the unimaginable gift of the Lord Jesus Christ himself to you. That he gives you what you do not deserve. And then your heart gets transformed by that. So please don't start here if you're not a Christian. But for those of us, the majority of us who, who know and love Jesus, has he moved your heart in this way? Do you regard your possessions as your own? Or have you begun to see these things that giving is love? Giving is the gospel. Giving is worship. This is the true diagnostic of where your heart is, of the character and reality of your spirituality, isn't it? The willingness to give. And that is how I I think we can understand what was happening in Acts 2. Why Christ, the love of Christ, the work of the Spirit erupted in profound generosity in that congregation. Shall we pray? As we pray, I want to just voice some words of confession as well as of God's asking for God's help together so that we can approach him and ask for his help. We're going to take communion in just a couple of moments. The bread and the wine are the constant reminder of the gift that's been given to us, the priceless gift. The treasure that eclipses all other treasures. The gift of Jesus himself. And it is never, it's never right, is it, to take those things without happily, quickly repenting of our sin. When you feel the conviction of the Spirit, you must never sit on that for a moment. You must act. When the God is stirring you in some way and you begin to glimpse what holiness is and you begin to desire it, you act straight away. You repent of your sin. It's not that you have to become worthy to take the bread and the wine. It really works the other way around, doesn't it? Christ gives himself to us when we're not worthy. But we must constantly desire that we become more like him and never more so than in this area of generosity so let's pray father we want to come to you and confess that our hearts have been shaped and seduced by the wealth and the idolatry of the age we live in that is so dependent upon the consumerist mindset in fact it shapes the way we worship So for so many of us, Lord, church is just one more place where we go and consume. Father, we want to confess it and repent so that, Lord, you will turn us inside out. Teach us, Lord, how to live lives that are marked by the flow of generosity and of giving. Because, Jesus, that was you. That was you towards us. You were rich yet became poor. So that we could have your wealth. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we are yours, belong to you, that we are safe, that we can never outgive you. And I pray, Lord, that you will move our hearts in true repentance where we have withheld. Teach us to love you in this way. 
And so help us to be more spiritual. In Jesus' name, amen.